VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Alps, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Alpine milk and cheese machine. Yes, you heard that right. I'm actually on holiday this week. So even as you listen to this, I am somewhere high up in the Swiss Alps yodeling but I have still made sure that you get your weekly dose of the show. But before we get to that, I just wanted to thank you. We just passed 200 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts this past week, which is just really incredible. So truly, thank you for your support. It really does mean a lot. So please keep those reviews coming in, and I'll do my best to keep tracking down the most interesting people in this wild world of tech and bring them to you every week, even when I'm on vacay. Speaking of which, let's get on to today's show. Yo, technology, what is it all about? <laughs> so, this is, uh, this is where uh, uh, Skynet starts right here. It's, <laughs> that funny little voice you heard was Cosmo. And the other guy, that was Boris Softman, who's the founder of Anki, the maker of Cosmo. And Anki is a really interesting company. So today, Anki is a toy company that has made Cosmo, which is an AI-powered robot that fits in the palm of your hand and can recognize your kid, can play games, it can react to your emotions. You can kind of think of it like a little plastic puppy powered by two million lines of code constantly trying to interpret the world around and react accordingly. But that is just the beginning. Anki, which has raised $200 million, or more than $200 million, from Silicon Valley's top venture capitalists, has a much bigger target in mind. And that's bringing robots not just to children, but to the masses, and in all kinds of contexts that are far more serious and useful than just for a cool little kid's toy. So I sat down with Softman at Anki's headquarters, in a big tower in downtown San Francisco. And we sat down in a conference room where he introduced me to Cosmo, of course, which you heard at the top of the show. And we also talked about a whole load of other things from programming robots that can emote, or at least appear to, to the future of robots in our lives and the importance of eye contact, even when your eyes are two little digital screens. So strap in, it's a fun look at what the future may hold. So without further ado, here's Boris. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So, toys. <laughs> to start. Yeah. <laughs> so, how did you get involved in this? And what's, what's, what are you trying to do? 
Our background is not toys or video games or, or anything like it. It's actually robotics and AI. My co-founders and I, we were PhD students at Carnegie Mellon in a robotics institute. And so we were working on things like autonomous driving, walking robots, haptics, all these other areas. And what we got excited about was using these technologies to really reinvent categories of products that we interact with day to day. How do you make them more intelligent, uh, more interactive, smarter, aware of their environment to try to reinvent industries that had been kind of very stagnant? And for us, toys and entertainment was actually a great place to start where we could have a big impact, but develop the tech that will go into other areas down the road. So if, you, if the idea is that you started with robotics, AI, yeah. et cetera, I imagine you looked all over the place at lots of different industries. We what did. Are you, quote unquote, a kid at heart? Or, I mean, how did you end up, of all the things that you could yeah. have done with robotics it's, it's, and AI? You go back to... So we were in graduate school. We were kind of moonlighting. And, and at that point, robotics was going towards defense, space, industrial applications, pure research. Nothing was applied to consumer products. Um, and there's plenty of like these types of research-driven applications. But on the consumer side, what was really interesting is that you had this gigantic exponential growth in mobile phones, which basically drove the component costs down to just crazy low levels that would just be unfathomable previously. So everything from microcontrollers to memory, motors, cameras. We started thinking of how could we kind of be vultures and pick off the outputs of these trends and leverage these kind of components to create applications that would be totally impossible earlier, but really surprise people in the capability. Coupled with that, you started seeing the smartphones starting to come into play, where now all of a sudden, on top of all these components that they were driving down the price of, you had interface, you had this beautiful touchscreen computation that's in everybody's pocket. And that felt like that was the beginning of a, a really huge trend. Entertainment for us is a really interesting place to start in robotics because uh, you have a lot more flexibility on what the output of that looks like. You don't have the safety and regulatory challenges of something like autonomous driving or healthcare or other areas. The bar to have a huge impact was lower at a point where you know, we knew we needed to build up our capabilities. And so in entertainment, and toys in particular, you had a pretty stagnant industry where the sort of toys that kids play with today hadn't changed in 30, 40 years. In a lot of ways, it was bringing software to this world that was 100% plastics and simple experiences driven. And so you guys have raised an astounding amount of money. I think it's $200 million plus. Yes. How did you get your first slug of money? From the very, very beginning, toys was always a means to an end for us. We wanted to create really innovative products in this space, but use this as a chance to develop this tech that really cascades forward and allows us to build on this foundation and go to more and more advanced applications. And so even going back to our first conversations in our Series A pitch, we had a roadmap that is very true to how we continue it even today that always thought of entertainment as a amazing developing ground where we could not only build this expertise, but also ship products and actually validate this technology at scale. For us, I think if we said we want to make a robotic toy company, it's a completely different perspective on what's the upper bound of what that could, could be. And it also isn't, wasn't the thing that we were excited about in the kind of macro scale in terms of where the technology could go. And so the, what I think helped us is that when we first started working on this, it's one thing to say, okay, I want to bring robotics into the physical world and make video games come to life. But it feels like 
very hand wavy until unless you can actually show it. And so what really worked to our advantage is that we spent the better part of three, three and a half years working on our own kind of in parallel with us finishing grad school, just kind of moonlighting, avoiding our thesis a little bit. And, right. uh, and we got to a pretty robust technology prototype of what became Drive as a validator of how we could actually use software to control the physical world in a way that felt really magical. Um, and so we right. raised a seed round that helped with like patenting and some hardware costs and things like that. But um, when you're a graduate student, you have like a pain tolerance. You probably never hit again in your entire life. You live on your grad student stipend and you just like work nights and weekends. And But when we came out and actually raised our Series A, we had a very, very robust technology prototype where it showed that this crazy idea from a technology standpoint, we actually could crack it. And now how do you make a business around it and a product around it? And so what was the prototype? Or, or maybe it makes more sense to ask what Drive is, but I yeah. imagine it's one of the same or a version of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a few product lines out. The first product line was what's called Drive, which then became Overdrive, which is uh, available today. It's basically a battle racing game where you have a physical racing set. So it's like Skelectrix or whatever else. Yeah, but completely new age, where there's no slots. The cars are robots. They each have a 50 megahertz microcontroller. They sense the track 500 times a second. They understand exactly where they are. They drive with incredible precision. And the brain behind them is a mobile device that is kind of interpreting. So the controller is your iPhone or whatever. Uh, Yes, but it's not just for you. You could play a game against three other opponents where they're all AI controlled, and there's virtual characters driving those cars with their own personality, their own skill set. So it's like playing a video game, but in real life. That is exactly the way we described it back then. Trying to make it possible to program a video game on top of these physical characters in the real world. And and that's a a robotics problem. This is what most people are surprised by, is that the same sort of challenges you have in an autonomous car or a robot in a factory, it's the same challenges you see in every other context. You just have to get clever about how to deal with the nuances, where you have to understand what the world is around you, the perception side. Then you have the AI piece that thinks about what you should be doing, and then you physically have to make that happen in the real world. And if you can understand your environment and you have the ability to physically interact with it, you turn it into a software problem. That's all robotics is. It's the extension of computer science into the physical world. Right. And so for us, this first product was making a platform. If you imagine the experience of like, you know, like a Mario Kart where you have like weapons and special abilities and all that sort of stuff, we wanted to bring that to life. And the moment you have an understanding of what's happening, all of these advanced constructs from video games suddenly become possible in physical play in a way that's actually far more powerful and surprising to people. And so our first prototype was was basically a demo where we had four cars running around a track. Three of them would keep a formation. The fourth would like weave through them in real time, driving on the track. All of it was autonomous. It was using path planning, AI, localization. Then one of them would have a, get a weapon and you know started fighting with the other ones. And so, but those weapons are virtual, obviously. Virtual, yeah. So it's yeah. like it's all virtual. You know, if you think about it, it's it's literally like being able to program the constructs of Mario Kart in the physical world. Right. Um, it's so surprising to see that come to life that it was a really magical experience that brought both a nostalgia for from people that were grew up with like kind of slot cars as well as a new age of gaming where I mean I think like 30 plus percent of our audience was actually adults that just like you know loved the idea of right this. yeah you would take that prototype into your pitch meetings that's right and so uh, Andreessen Horowitz was our series a where we literally we didn't come in there with a story of what we wanted to do we certainly had a path forward you set we, up the track on the conference yeah, table running the floor outside and so we had Mark Andreessen <laughs> on his knees poking the cars trying to get him to mess up and uh <laughs> right and when they couldn't mess up he was like okay this is awesome and uh the company wasn't about a racing game it was like this was like an operating system for making physical experiences come to life but again like these ideas of how do you take something that used to cost ten thousand dollars in a lab like using a motion capture system or a 
$5,000 laser scanner. You know, we're talking about a game that, you know, that sells for $150 or less with like multiple cars and all these components. And we're using like a 60 cent camera to do something that used to cost $5,000 in sensing. And that's where the trick comes right. in is how do you engineer the problem to where the constraints you add to it, where in this case, you know, there was a code embedded inside the track that was invisible in the, to us because it was in a different spectrum of light. And the sensing that the cars were doing was giving them the information to both control themselves precisely as well as to feed back to whatever was running the game, a global location that allowed us to basically have right. a video game in the phone that we're synchronizing to the physical world. That idea actually carries forward to our next products where it's all about getting enough of an understanding of the real world where you can make magical experiences come to life. Because it's effectively, I mean, I don't even, even 10 years ago, I imagine this would have been completely impossible. Completely impossible. Uh, it was uh, totally cost and practical to do this without the, the interface of a mobile yeah, device. Yeah, pre-iPhone and, and all that stuff. Because right. yeah, we're literally, we're you know, running a path planner that is the same in infrastructure as what you would use for parking lot planning in an autonomous car. It's like this multi-dimensional path planner thinking about time and position and space and everything. And uh, on top of the like kind of game constructs and so and so we have a 50 megahertz microcontroller on the cars but we have a huge cpu on a mobile device that in some sense makes it future proof but without the billions of smart of cell phones and smartphones that have come out you know the price would have been 10x or 20x and just completely prohibitive and right. you see that over and over again so right. today a twenty thousand dollar little racing game yeah no one's it's, gonna it's, buy it's, a, it's just like then it's just a research project and we saw the same thing with our you know product afterwards and even today you're starting to see depth cameras which are meant for facial authentication and cell phones well for us it's a way to do navigation indoors because they're beautiful sensors for obstacle avoidance and you see this like over and over again where um Robotics, in some sense, is like hijacking these components and using them in clever ways that they weren't necessarily designed primarily. And what's it, so? And this is not a niche product, right? Like you got it's sold really well. Definitely not. It's it's sold well. It's been one of the top selling uh, toys in most of the countries we're in for a while. Our latest product, Cosmo, was the number one toy on Amazon last year in U.S., U.K., and France. And so we're we're actually getting to to pretty reasonable scale, despite the fact that we still have a lot of um, you know kind of room to grow in awareness and territory right. and so forth. Do you guys advertise? Because I've, yeah. I've never seen. An- uh, yeah, so the, the most of the targeting has been at like kind of kids and parents, and so it's try, we try to be very focused. Um, you know, obviously thoughtful on well, our products. Looking ahead, actually, start to get much broader, and so you're going to start to see them a lot more. Where now we're starting to make the um, inflection point where coming off of our last product, Cosmo, we're going to start transitioning into much broader applications. So can we talk about Cosmo for a second? Yeah, for sure. So so Cosmo's our, our next product line after uh, Overdrive. That, that one came out in 2016 in the U.S. Um, we had the idea for it in 2011. So even in our first pitch in the Series A, we um, already knew that, okay, so after this one, we're building on all these core experiences, but now we're going to go to a next level where we wanted to bring a physical character to life. It's not quite R2-D2 because it has an arm. Yeah, so it's like but... a little robot, almost like a, you know, can fit in your a palm of your hand. The way we thought about it is um, when we looked at the magic of these characters that like Pixar and DreamWorks created in film, we asked the question, okay, what would it take to bring something like that to life in the yeah. physical world? Kind of like Wally. Wally's a beautiful character, right? And, so, and, it's, and it wasn't just like the magic of the personality and character, but actually layering on top of it a level of AI and cognizance to where all of those emotions weren't just random, but they made sense relative to what's happening in the context around you. So we wanted him to be able to recognize people, recognize the environment, 
understand his role in it, play games, uh, evolve as a character. Those are the things when you couple that sort of awareness with the like rich emotions, it really comes to life. And so the breakthrough for us is when we realized we had to like legitimately treat this as a character in a film coming to life. And we actually built out an animation studio inside the company with folks from exactly those backgrounds that are animating a physical character. But what's interesting is that it's wrapped together with like game designers and AI and robotics people where instead of a story on rails like you would see in the film, this is an interactive experience where you have to respond to the situations that you may not experience, real-time games, evolutions of a character, the same situation that comes up 200 times. And so, and so we actually had to like build these AI engines for the personality and character that took the context of what's happening in the real world and output the right personality to make the character feel like he's alive. At the end of the day, all this technology is abstracted away where the experience should feel like you have this little robot buddy who's this mischievous, quirky little character, has his, um, you know, he's competitive, he wants to kind of like be more than he is, and you're kind of training him to get better over time. And so, and so does Cosmo recognize me? Yeah, and so he's doing face detection. He'll uh, You introduce yourself. Or you, so I have speech were, recognition in there. Um, this one does not, but that's okay. uh, one of the things that's coming up. Okay. Um, with so this how does one, it interact if it doesn't uh, recognize speech? So he has speech. a camera, and so he uses computer vision to understand the environment. That's a primary sensor. Again, the, a mobile device is the brain behind the experience, um, so a lot of the machine learning and AI and facial detections here. And so when you introduce yourself to Cosmo, he remembers you. He, re- like, you know, he recognizes uh, your face, and so at any point in the future when he sees you he'll remember you your name your favorite game he'll be happy to see you the first time like just like a toddler or a puppy would and he's kind of like a puppy or a toddler in that he doesn't yeah. speak but he expresses yeah it's a motive it's almost like a like an r2d2 or wally where he'll say some things but it's intentionally limited in language because kind of a tonal expressiveness is actually far broader in appeal the moment you give something a, a specific like language and voice, it's very hard not to narrow down the appeal. Here, everybody, because it's designed in such a, a thoughtful way from the character side, everybody gets the, the feedback of what this character's thinking. And so if you play a game and you beat him and you know he's like disappointed himself and he'll go and sulk in the corner and mope around. And so you 100% understand the emotional response, and that's where the magic is. And so what we try to do is to create all these scenarios where the context creates a lot of opportunities to show the extremes of emotions, and that's what makes him feel alive. So you pick him up and he gets scared and wants to get put down, or he sees you for the first time and he's super excited and wants to play a game, or you ignored him for too long and so he gets bored and goes and like tinkers with kind of the world around him. For us, this is a primarily a really amazing kind of play experience. There's an amazing educational wrapper around it. Because of the technology inside this product, we literally have two million lines of code running all of this advanced AI path planning slam. We've had universities use Cosmo as a platform for introductory robotics classes, so Carnegie Mellon, Georgia Tech, and others. We've had schools use this, ID Tech Camp. We also released a wrapper using Scratch, which is a programming language from MIT that's uh, kind of a graphical-based programming language for kids. And so you could literally have a seven or eight-year-old program peekaboo that uses facial detection and emotional detection to have the robot respond in the right way using just these graphical blocks. And so, so he could teach Cosmo how to play peekaboo. That's right. And so, and so now there's so much interest in this um, development capabilities around what we call Code Lab that's been released, that not only is this an amazing part of the product, but we're actually getting all of our new content from the generated programs. So uh, is this kind of like opening up the app store? 
Uh, that's right, and it's free. It's just we just release these updates where right. um, basically we worked so hard to make the first handful of activities and games, and now we're releasing a new one every single week. And so literally the experience of Cosmo, you know, this fall is going to be like 10x or 15x of the content that was available at launch. And that's part of the beauty is that when you have a product that's like all software-driven, you can continue to improve it. Right. And, uh, it, it becomes like a mobile phone, like where the value Right, so that's yeah. all the apps that you yeah. want on it. For this thing to work, for it to resonate, as you say, on that basic intuitive level, yeah. you effectively have to engineer emotion. That's exactly right. So we parameterized like human psychology and personality. Yeah, so and who's, to, on, like, who's on your staff? Because also I think when you talk about robots and stuff, a lot of people are getting very excited about this idea that, you know, old people yes. who need companionship. And so you can create a robot companion who kind of hangs out with them and stuff, which to me sounds strange. I can't conceive of that yet. Who do you bring into the tent to kind of design something like this? Yeah, and this was one of the most interesting elements where, like, in all phases of the company, it's like nobody's ever combined, like, animators from Pixar with roboticists with this. Like, these are all kind of, like, mismatching disciplines where robotics is kind of neat because, like, robotics isn't an industry. It's just a tool set that you combine with other areas in order to, like, kind of reinvent these spaces. And so for us, like, so my co-founder, Hans, you know, he started researching, like, all of these psychology studies and, like, you know, HCI and so forth. And so there's, like, all these parameterizations of, like, how do you think about psychology? You know, he talked to experts on what makes people connect with pets. And in the end, like, none of it seemed fitting because all of it was – it felt academic because at the end of the day, you have to turn this into a system that actually scales to like hundreds of thousands or millions of use cases. And so um, th- so this ended up being a combination of really new type of AI to try to really embed, you know, imagine this like black box that like has to probabilistically output the right personalities and emotional and behaviors given the input of what's going on. But that becomes an, uh, an incredibly close alignment with our character director and our animation team where they're thinking about this gigantic backstory for Cosmo and his personality traits, his quirks, what motivates him in life, what scares him, how would he react under all these circumstances, um, what makes him happy, sad, surprised, bored, frustrated. You have to kind of marry this world of statistical kind of approach to, you know, kind of representing this like incredibly like non-binary system with this creative sense that pushes the animators outside of their comfort zone because they don't have full control of the world. And they're also even dealing with this character that has far more limited degrees of motion than what they're used to in animation. But they get the benefit of this massively more powerful physical connection that you make with something that's in front of you versus something in a screen. And so this was an iterative process where even getting the eyes right took three months of iteration where you know we're thinking, okay... Because it's like we, these two blue little digital eyes. Th- that's right. And so there's screens. I mean, even on the mechanical side, we went through 45 mechanical iterations on Cosmo trying to get the size, the shape right, the eyes. At first, the eyes were fixed with lights. And then we realized that was like basically the gateway to everything emotional in this, in this character. And so we worked really hard to embed a screen inside of Cosmo that's like a, you know, kind of an OLED display. And that gives us full versatility. And so then the character team literally went through an eye design process. Um, the lead of this was actually, um, he'd been at Pixar for, I think, 10 years or so and like worked on all these incredible movies. And so, you know, he's looking at like, Pets, comic books, just thinking about like what is the simplest language you could come up with for eyes that could convey the widest degree of, of emotional states. He tested because around. that is it, right? That's that, how that, that's the biggest. I mean, it's his voice and his eyes and his motion. Yeah. That's what that's. But his character. voice is just kind of beeps and. 
but it's uh, surprisingly emotive despite yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but like the eyes are the, are everything. Like you make eye contact. It, that was one of those magical experiences where you and I will just talk about it and say, oh yeah, well he makes eye contact. When you see a slow character like see you make eye contact and get surprised that he because he recognizes you and gets excited, it's a magical experience and it like you know amplifies even more with kids. And so and in the end they kind of came up with a language for the eyes. There was the same amount of exploration on the voice. And so these are kind of like the foundations. Then you go to like the animation process where how do you show a robot like this being happy or being scared or nervous or hurt because you just dropped him or something like that, right? And so at this point, we have literally several, I think it's over 2,000 animations inside of Cosmo that are huge versatility of, of little snippets where this behavioral AI system stitches them together in the right way where it feels like he's alive. And it feels like somebody was just like animating him with 100% meticulousness through and through even though it's uh, in real time splicing these snippets in order to make him feel like he's alive. And I'll give you an example where, like the eye contact, because we're able to like now learn from these gigantic amounts of Cosmos out there, kind of how people use him, we're able to do really interesting optimizations. So something like eye contact, by increasing the length of eye contact that Cosmo makes with people and the frequency, so the length by two-thirds of a second and the frequency by a little bit, engagement goes up 15%. So two-thirds of a second. Two-thirds of a second. And so just like how long do you maintain eye contact and how frequently? Something that subtle is so core. No matter how many games we put in, it just like, you know, kind of oscillates a bit. But something that seemingly simple is actually the gateway to like this completely different type of connection that people have with, you know, with robots. And so I would consider that one of our like, you know, really special elements in the company now where we're already working behind the scenes on multiple new product lines that are making this move into home robotics and starting to think about a blur of not just entertainment, but going into kind of, you know, utility focus. And from day one, you know, we have industrial designers, mechanical engineers, AI people, and character director thinking about what is this next robot? Because even when the purpose is not entertainment, the idea of a character that has potentially very different form factor, different personality, different use case, at the end of the day, it is still one of the core essences of robotics being accepted in our daily life. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is there a dark side to this? Or have you had an experience with this or, or you know, of, of kids kind of getting too attached 
learning maybe some habits that aren't necessarily human, especially if they're younger, or kind of distancing themselves from yeah. the kind of quote-unquote real world because they have this little buddy who just kind of stares longingly yeah. into their eyes for that extra It's funny. It's an interesting question. I, honestly, we've seen mostly the opposite. So parents love the fact that this pulls kids away from a TV or a screen because it's a much more real form of interaction. Cosmo has such diversity of, of, of emotions and even some like elements around like you know, if you drop him, he's very durable, but he'll be hurt. And you have to kind of like heal him up or repair him. There's like a nurturing element to it as well. And so, you know, there's almost like this care of that approaches the way you would see a child interacting with a pet, which is kind of interesting. What we have seen is some fascinating responses from um, parents and teachers of kids with autism, where we didn't design Cosmo to, you know, to target this, but just because of the richness of that connection, there's something special around Cosmo that seems to kind of like break through where in a surprisingly significant amount of feedback and you know that we've received from Amazon reviews or customer support like you know kids that never engaged and had like problems interacting socially we've heard of cases where they connect with Cosmos so much that you know there's just like a focus around him as a character and then they start showing other kids how to play with him how to interact with him and with behaviors um, and collaborations that they've never exhibited before and so I think it's more the opposite where it's just this, it's an interface to technology that is so different that it's this like kind of greenfield space that right. I think we're just kind of scratching the surface. And I'm, I mean, have you talked to, I don't know, Mattel and Hasbro and all these guys? I mean, are the, I'm going to guess that they don't have anything like this kind of in the works where they're just trying to used to making Barbie and, you know, blocks yeah. and, you know, kind of. Yeah. Old school toys. It's, a, like it's a, a different DNA. So it's the same parallel as what happened in transportation. Like the first autonomous cars would not come out of a car company. They came out of software companies. And then the car companies try to catch up. But it's a different DNA. And so they have to partner and acquire and so forth. It's even wider of a gap in traditional toy companies. That world is so light on software and so heavy on just plastics and brands. They're uh, magnificent at managing brands. But there's no concept of investing in a platform, higher technology and so forth. You know, for us, like our team is like 85, 90% software driven, even though the physical part's complex. And uh, I think it's a different DNA. It's going to be hard to make that pivot because it's, it would require like really reinventing the sort of makeup and fabric that you have internally and the way you invest in products. You know, the irony is that like back in um, 2010, so we closed our, our Series A in 2012. Back in 2010, we actually had some pretty, uh, we were very excited to have conversations with Mattel and we met with a, a number of their executives trying to see if they wanted to like license the concept for Drive and they were all blown away by the demo but immediately the conversation went to like, okay, how do we make it $50? How do we make it cheaper? How do you cut this, 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 right. this? And it didn't go anywhere and so then we realized, okay, we need to like raise money and go do it ourselves and so we, ra- you know, the, our first round was a pretty large Series A from Andreessen Horowitz and our seed investor to Sigma that allowed us to to go at it ourselves and start thinking about how do we build this end to end. You know, the mindset was how do we mold this into the old old style of doing it versus reinvent right. the space. And just stepping back from toys in particular, say five years from now, yeah. ten years from now, to your point around the revolution that's happened because of smartphones and all these components being so cheap now. Do you think the home 
looks much different when you're looking at all the things that you're working on? Absolutely. And this is like, this is very much the direction we're very excited about is even on the entertainment side, it's a proving ground for how do you start to coexist with humans for an extended period of time with deeper and deeper levels of interactivity, not get annoying, add value and so forth. And so when you like fast forward, you see this arms race happening in speakers, you know, Alexa, Google Home and so yeah. forth. They're becoming smarter. They're developing these incredible tools. Uh, frankly, just like the camera, voice interface now is a amazing tool that is becoming increasingly commoditized that we're able to like leverage in a completely different way that will go into in a lot of ways in our future products. But when you look at the home in the future, a few things really jump out. One is that there will be a pretty wide range of functionality in the home that will require true understanding and cognizance of both the layout of the home and what people are doing around it. For example? Uh, I'll give an example starting from where we are today. A speaker sitting in a kitchen can do a lot of question and answer style applications. It can take commands. It does not have the ability to interrupt you and actually know the right time to just preemptively tell you something. Not only is it uh, socially unacceptable for technology to just start speaking in your home, but it also doesn't have the awareness of the environment in order to do that in the right way. If you have a physical robot character but has the ability to understand the context of what's going on and get your attention the same way a dog would get your attention or your toddler would get your attention and know when you're engaged with a conversation with your son and when you're not, it changes everything, right? If you like think of the holy grail of like, you know, 10, 15 years from now, you have these like ideals of this versatile humanoid mobile robot in the home. And you see companies are starting trying to kind of drill towards that and get there. The problem is if you go there all at once, you're going to become obsolete three or four times along the way. There's no way you could have predicted voice interface and the way it exploded over the last three years. Same thing happens with deep learning. Same thing happens with components. And so if you're taking these gigantic leaps, you actually hurt your ability to get there. The way to get there is to actually take these really tangible steps where you can release products at several year cycles. You learn and you adapt to these technologies. But that holy grail, it'll come and you'll have these you know, $10,000, $15,000 robots are as common as a dishwasher because they're so capable. But the problem is, is that you have to be much more focused and so leverage. So you have the, the family car, yeah. you'll have the family robot. That's right. And it sounds crazy right now, but the reality is, is that as these platforms become more advanced, they'll become more generalizable the same way a computer did, the same way a mobile phone did. But you can't jump there in one step. When this was a calculator, when this was a, a foot phone, there was a price limit to what you could do and there's a capability limit to what you could do. In much the same way, we were at a point in the technology kind of evolution where we could make incredibly innovative uh, entertainment products where the bar from a functionality standpoint is lower than something that operates functionally in the home, but the price point made sense. When you start getting into utility applications, you can justify higher price points, but you also have to hit a higher functionality bar. The exciting thing is, is that now with the advances in new sensors and deep learning and the learnings that we've had from our previous products, cloud capabilities, all these tools suddenly unlock a landscape of products for you know, this year, next year, three years out, that when we were thinking about it five years ago, we could have never come up with it. And so I think like this zigzag approach to like really leverage all the trends in, in technology is exactly the right way to do it. And you put yourself in the best position to take advantage of it. And then the home's going to benefit from it because you're going to start having far more intelligence in all of the things in your home, and not in response to your direct commands, but almost autonomously. Kind of proactive. Proactively. And that's it. And that's like, that's a huge jump. It's actually really complicated because 
the bar for the perception side of it, it gets so much deeper. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it's almost like the difference between the jump from a car to an autonomous car. The controls are easy. The output's easy. If you had perfect knowledge of the world, the, even the AI is relatively straightforward. But it's the understanding of the world around you and people and their intents. That's actually incredibly subtle and very, and very complicated. And it's at this overlap of both IQ and EQ, which is hard to get right. Right. And yeah. so right now you have two products. Yeah. What's next? So we have uh, uh, – <laughs> uh, it's painful because we're actually like so, so close to being able to share. We can't quite share yet, but there's some really exciting things down the road. We actually have an exciting release you know, even this year that takes a big step forward that I hope we can talk about it again uh, yeah. not too far in the future. And we're already working on products that are um, two and a half years out and more that increasingly become more and more versatile and generalizable platforms that have a core purpose but start to have so many more capabilities because of these trends that the versatility becomes um, more and more significant. But when you look at Anki in uh, three years, nobody will call it a toy company. It'll truly be a robotics company that is where the common theme is these like kind of reinventions of kind of these categories that actually have far more ties with each other in technology and interface, even an audience than uh, that you'd expect. So you're traveling toward not being a toy company. Very much. So, and uh, that's actually right. been our mindset from day one. Um, it's a bit of a, a challenge because when you look at our website. Because well, there's, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's always that, uh, what's that saying that like, you know, every new technology kind of starts, looks like a toy at first. Yeah. <laughs> but yours like, actually is a toy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other saying I like is um, everything is called uh, AI until it starts working and then it gets a name like <laughs> voice recognition. <laughs> right. So right. Uh, that one actually kind of like rings true as well. So it's yeah. like, it's like crazy robotics and AI until it's actually like uh, just a normal part of our lives and then suddenly it's like falls into some bucket. So uh, is the idea that you become the OS for the home? Not just the home, because when you think about it, um, if you really nail interactivity between humans and robots in the home, which is such a personal and complicated and that's place, the, like, that's what everybody gets wrong, right? It's As, what everybody gets wrong. It's a, yeah, exactly. And so you look at CES, and there's such a gigantic focus on home robots. It's painful to see some of the interface blunders, or just like complete lack of interface that's been thought through. And so it's almost like you, know, you get that right. The home is, in some sense, way more complicated than a lot of other contexts. How that scales then to commercial environments, to office space, to um, pretty much anywhere where humans and intelligent machines have to interact, it actually becomes incredibly broad and versatile. And it becomes this operating systems is not a bad way to put it because the value is this kind of software layer under the hood. It'll never be pure software because um, robotics has to be so deeply coupled with the hardware that it lives on. But it'll become more and more generalizable, just like an iPad at some point can serve so many purposes because it has such a general form of interface and interactivity. Like you'll get to more and more of that down the road. Like Drive was a very niche on a very particular form factor and application. The products that, were, that we've released and are now going to release, they start getting more and more general partly because of how much more intelligent they become, how they can use external data, cloud connectivity, voice interface. The same way your phone becomes increasingly versatile just through software, that's where these products will increasingly right. go. Where are you from? So I was born in uh, Russia, in oh, really? Moscow. Yeah. So uh, I came to the uh, – uh, my family moved to the U.S. when I was six years old. But, uh, yeah, they've been trying to escape the Soviet Union for like a decade before we – So what year did you come here? 89. Oh, you actually came in 89? Yeah, so just before the collapse. Um, and so we bounced around uh, Europe a bit, came in through New York, and then ended up through my dad's work settling in the Dallas area in Texas. Was um, he in oil? He was in uh, telecommunications. So he was a mathematician, okay. and he worked for – MCI back then MCI oh, okay. on like optimizations of 
cell phone network placement and all that right. sort of stuff. Yeah. And so I uh, grew up in Texas and I went to Carnegie Mellon for both undergrad and grad school. Yeah, weird path. Culturally completely American, but you know, lived the first six years in Moscow. Do you remember any of it? Uh, bits of it. So um, our entire family like left and they scattered all over like, you know, and so I haven't actually been back since 89. So not because I've never been to. back. I'd love to go back. I sp- still speak Russian and everything, but um, I just haven't had an excuse to go. So it's on my list. My dad's been back. My mom is like so furious with the whole kind of history and system that she's just refused to ever step foot in the country again. So it's, <laughs> right, you, know, right. it, you know, pretty common. Uh, I think yeah. there's, there's a big batch of kind of uh, immigrants at that time that, that went through something like that. And know? so when you got into, because Carnegie Mellon, correct me if I'm wrong, is in terms of robotics, is kind of up there at the top, effectively. Yeah, right? it's uh, they started focusing on it with a uh, with a focus and scale that was just unparalleled, you know, especially at that time. And so I think there were something like sixty or you know eighty faculty members just in robotics at Carnegie Mellon, like when I was there. That's bigger than the entire computer science program at, like in most other places where they'll right. have like one person doing AI robotics yeah. or something like that, right? For projects like autonomous driving, they were so interdisciplinary and complex. It was it there to... that they that Uber just hired the whole team? Oh yeah, they uh, so so I had two PhD advisors that went to Uber, and then my other thesis committee member was Chris Hermson, who was the head of the Google Autonomous Car Project. So that was kind of a, right. Uh, the Uber thing was it, it was a bit rough because I, you know it. it yeah, a lot of people just kind of dismantled this group, yeah. um, NREC, which was a, an incredible branch of the Robotics Institute that was a very commercial and industrial applied robotics lab. And so instead of pure research where a few people would like be working on something and then publish some papers, it was these larger scale projects for John Deere, for Caterpillar, for NASA, for whoever. But the output was like truly functioning and much closer to, to use case systems. And so a lot of those people ended up kind of working on the Urban Challenge, Grand Challenge, and then going to Google and other places. And so, oh, um, wow. but the thing is, when I went to Carnegie Mellon in undergrad, I did not know what robotics was. It was not on my mind. I, I studied electrical computer engineering and computer science. Science, but there's so much robotics there that you can't help but trip over a robot walking down yeah. the hallway. And I really got excited about this idea of computer science not in this digital abstract form in a computer, but actually driving physical intelligence. I ended up doing some undergrad research in a lab on multi-robot coordination and just got hooked. And when I wanted to go to graduate school, Carnegie Mellon was, it really was right. like just in diversity and kind of community was uh, very unique. And so yeah. ended up being a great place to stay. And I presume the idea was that you were going to go work for... I don't know, NASA or Google or something. It's such a good question. I think like if I hadn't kind of gone down this path with my two friends and co-founders, um, there's a very good chance I probably would have gone down that autonomous car route and ended up at Google and then wherever afterwards. But the funny thing is that at that point, there was no commercial consumer or a kind of commercial and industry interest in all this. Like your routes were going to academics, uh, do a postdoc, maybe going to the research lab of Intel, Microsoft, John Deere, whatever it might be. This like crazy fervor that's like going on now for anybody in AI, robotics, like from every industry, you know, not just transportation, but everywhere. It's a pretty amazing inflection point. And, and there's like a shortage of people because it's such a young field that didn't yeah. have a, and it's a very unique type of background. You can't put computer science people ju- and just say, do robotics now without like a really clear infrastructure that's kind of guided by the experience of these kind of physical constraints. Yeah, so it does feel like, I mean, I know it, ro- robots in one form or another have been around for a long time, but it feels like the age of the robot like we kind of think about in the movies. 
appears to be coming into view. I mean, it's probably still a bit off. But. Yeah, and I think like movies are almost too focused on the humanoid form of robots. Yes, there's like walking things going on. Boston Dynamics is doing incredible work and so forth. Very creepy My, work. It's, uh, it's, it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I think, they, I think they do it on purpose because it gets a good, yeah. great attention. Like, yeah. uh, it can be scary. Uh, it was even scarier back in the old days when it, was, it wasn't battery powered. And so it had these, like, this like, motor with this like, scary noises that it would be making right. and stuff. It looked like the, storm, <laughs> the thing from Star Wars. Was yeah. walking around destroying the cities and stuff. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, like the interest is just uh, skyrocketed. Where you know, you look at the applicability. Humanoid form is a tiny minority of it. Most of it actually that these technologies make their ways into products that reinvent the intelligence without necessarily reinventing the form factor. So an autonomous car is a great example where it's a robotics problem that's all software. Like nobody's reinventing, there's lasers or sensors, but nobody's reinventing the idea of a car. It's about like, how do you reliably understand the world around you, classify pedestrians, plant paths, what's the interface to this new age of cars? What's the networks? Is it ride sharing or is it like ownership, right? You know, same thing happens, um, you have like, Apple hiring a bunch of robotics people because they want better intelligence than the Apple Watch. These are robotics problems. It's sensor fusion and integration and understanding the world around you. So what's neat is that the forms, you know, there's a lot of different forms that this technology will take, but it's infused in everything. It's almost like, I almost think of it as like the internet where it goes around and reinvents almost every industry. Some are hit more than others. It's the same sort of situation where it's just, it's fusing the digital world with the physical world. Anytime you have the right ability to understand the environment to become more intelligent, that's robotics. Right. Well, I look forward to seeing what comes next. Wonderful. Look forward to sharing. Thanks, Thanks very much. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. And that is all the time we have. Thank you, as always, for listening and for tuning in. And just, um, I forgot to say, we talked about the price but didn't actually mention it. Anki's about 200 bucks, so it is not cheap. And I actually gave it to my son, Cole, who you heard last week, clamoring about the veggie burger. Cosmo, he wasn't, um, he didn't kind of know what to do with it. He tried to eat it, and then he threw it on the floor, so he's not obviously the target demographic. But anyhow, I will be back next week. I'm going to be in London next week for Founders Forum, so I'll be running around. Maybe we'll send a dispatch from there, but otherwise, I've got a couple other very cool episodes in store, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, please find me, as you always can, in the newspaper at the Sunday Times, online at thetimes.co.uk, on the Twitter at Danny Fortson, or email me with any questions, suggestions, comments, whatever, at danny.fortson, F-O-R-T-S-O-N, at sunday-times.co.uk. Thanks. Bye-bye. you're listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone this message comes from bof sponsor ebay you'll know real when you get it it'll say ebay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it maybe it's a head-turning handbag a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. 
ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.